1: Knockback, the retro and nostalgia podcast, is brought to you by, well, you. If you want to learn how to support our show, go to patreon.com slash laststandmedia. <laughs> Greetings and salutations. Welcome back to Knockback. My name is Colin Moriarty. I'm jo- joined, as always, wow, by my brother Dagan, Admiral Hoshi Moriarty. <laughs> Thank you for joining me today. How are you today, my friend? <laughs> Thank
2: you for the reminder. That's the one character's name I forgot to write down. I'm doing it right now. Rhymes with the Yoshi. Oh, no, That's it. how I remembered it. All right. Thank you, Ka. You're
3: my very friend. welcome. Here
1: we are. You're very welcome. Here we, here we are, my friend. It's good. You cut out on my end, so I'm glad that this is still going. We're, having, we're, we're coming right into it, I guess, similar to the Battlestar Galactica. <laughs> falling apart. The Cylons may uh, be involved. During, yeah, during, during season four. Dave. Yo. How are you, my friend? Welcome all well. to to. Welcome all to Knockback, our, our retro nostalgia podcast. Dave, hey, tell me a little bit about your life right now. How's how's everything going in your world? Everything's good, dude.
2: Everything's good. I feel good. Where? oh, I'm off right now. I'm on hiatus from yeah. work. Nice. Uh, for a matter of, eh, uh, yeah, probably play out to like two or three weeks. Then when I go back, we got a big project that's probably going to take up the rest of the year, so I'm looking forward to that. So just kind yes. of promised myself I would relax a little bit. It's always a welcome thing to spend a little more, even a little more time on knockback, writing, researching, playing, watching, whatever. So that's nice. I did make one mistake, however, Kyle, with this mm-hmm. little respite period for myself. Mm-hmm. Promised Helene, I would do a project or two around the house. I got a little too giddy. I got a little too excited. Blurted out the fact, oh, you know, maybe I'll even do a couple things around here. Kind of half expecting her to say like, oh, you know, don't worry about it. Just kick your feet up type of thing. No, that's not. She immediately jumped on that opportunity. Carpe diem, yeah, man. Yeah, <laughs> <Now>, cop. <calm. laughs> You've seen me with a hammer. Maybe you haven't. Hopefully you haven't. It's not a good thing. No, I know. It's not a positive. I'm not a handy guy. Now, it's I'm not a lazy guy. I just don't have the know-how to do anything significant, which is fine. That's what contractors are for, right? I think I figured it. I was kind of bumming about this, the first couple of days of my little hiatus period, but I think I figured out what I'm going to do. I offered to redo Graydon's closet. Our 11-year-old, he's kind of, you know, he's in the kind of throes of growing up. He wants to change his room around. He got, like, Mm -hmm. older kid furniture. He's reorganizing from the little kid room. He's upgrading. It's evolving. Nice. nice. So he needs the closet.
1: So when I sleep there, and I don't have to sleep in a fucking so the <laughs> oh bed. God, that bed is so small it's I heard so dad t- slept it I heard dad slept it
2: he did I was oh like how God. is dad gonna sleep in this bed and he and dad couldn't sleep on the pullout downstairs because we were in the process of changing around the living rooms which is done now but when dad was here right after Christmas yeah he was victim to that time period so Graydon's got the new bed that's the good news But I got to redo his closet because, you know, like he's got to have a whole reorganizing thing for his clothes. He's got more clothes and sneaks now and all that kind of stuff. The toys got to come out. So I figured I'd just put a new organizing system in there. Whether I go with like the baker rack type thing where I just do shelving, Ikea type shelving. And then we're going to take the doors off and just put curtains, like heavy duty curtains up there. Because they're old. You know, the closet doors are old and they come off the track and everything. So I think it's a project that I could handle without having to be too handy if that makes sense so i'm mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not going to go as far as say i'm excited about the project right right i'd rather chill out but i figured it out i think i figured that out just hours ago so i'm pretty giddy about that i have a solution to because uh, first helene's like you got the lumber in the garage you promised me the garden bed as soon as covid started build the garden bed and i'm just thinking i'm gonna build the garden bed it's snowing and raining this, you know, like pre-spring period in Pennsylvania. It's just not pretty for that. So I think I think uh, I think I got it sorted out. What about you, my friend? What's going on with you this week?
1: Yeah, not much. I I, I just want to say I, I don't know how it is that you and I both. Grew up how we grew up with dad and just totally dot. I think it's because I think part of it is because dad was so handy that we and not very pushy; that we just didn't need to know. He anything. wasn't pushy. That's true. Yeah. So, but my our dad is like a maestro with every, It's just un- unbelievable. I know yeah, everyone like talks hard. up their dads, and I get that, but it really is true. Like our dad is just a craftsman, and I don't know how I grew up just not knowing how to do anything.
2: The apple I, fell I so I, I, far <laughs> from the and, tree. And
1: it just reminds me that we put up. A, a, Mike is really handy, and oh, see, so you I'm need not, that. I'm, yeah. Oh my god like i would be lost you know and so we were just doing something very simple like putting up a shelf and like using a like a, a like a drill gun and i was like i don't want to do it i don't want to do it. i'm gonna fuck it up like i don't want to do it <laughs> and i'm like happy to just hire people to do things and then she's like no just do it like a whole and i did it and i kind of fucked it up i mean we fixed it yeah but i got so mad afterwards i'm like i fucking said don't make me do it. Like I don't see what happens. Yeah, like see like I am and she's her whole thing is just like you've so psyched yourself out of being able to do any of this stuff as a, in your life that you just really believe that it's this difficult to And then it just gets worse and gun. worse. And exactly. And it's very similar to I guess how I feel about when I read someone's writing sometimes and I'm like, This is illiterate. You know, I am I assume that's how like it's like do you even know English? That's like when I read some things, I I, <laughs> I wonder that. that. Degree. And I think that that's how people look at me when they're like, do you understand? I'm going around changing the air filters in here. And that's like the maximum. That's a big that I'll name. ever. Yeah, that's a th- I mean, that's using like a ladder. You know, I'm like, oh, my God. You know? <laughs> a, a local kid, actually a local kid, our neighbor had a Mario little Mario doll and he threw it on our roof for some reason. <laughs> so I t- so I so he came knocking on the door and, and I was like, I uh, he's like a little like little boy. I don't I don't know how to gauge kids the ages. I would say he's maybe like five or something. Okay. And he That's... came over and I, I I got the ladder out and I used a hockey stick to like get it down. And I was like, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. Like it could have gone either way, but I got it. And I was like this kid's hero. He was like so amped to get his Mario doll back. And I'm like, please just don't throw your toys in my house anymore. He was trying to
2: get in the, <laughs> the chimney. It's like a war pipe.
1: Yeah, exactly. He's like, I got to I got to get to the next. Can't world. blame but him. Th- dig in, in my world. I'm getting my G.I. Joe's going. I, our, our, so our shots are blurry for each other because it, yeah. uh, we use Zencaster and it basically just takes the, the maximum quality and saves it first and then gives us what's left um, and that's all for you know the fidelity of the show but so digging won't really be able to see it too well but I'm pointing for the audience over here if you're on video I there see we those. go I'm starting to put my Joes up pixelated and, uh, Joes yeah there they are and yeah. it's I'm just taking them out of the box I, I put them all in their little coffins like everyone knows as I clean them and put them together and so I'm starting to remove them at first I was having a problem like it was making fun of me because I was like, I don't want to t- I've OCD myself out of wanting to take these out of the box again. And she's like, no, you got these shelves built like custom built to do this. You have to take them out of the box. And I'm like, all right, fine, because I was like, well, no, maybe I'll buy a whole nother set <laughs> and and put the and she's like, dude, this is insane. This is like insanity. Yep. So. But I wanted to ask you about this thing because I'm putting all my characters up. I'm doing a few things that I feel like are really important for my collection as, as they because I'm going to have them all up. There's going to be 500 and something oh, good. Oh, on the shelves. And so I'm trying to be like, you're right handed, you're left handed, you're left handed, you're right handed. Anything big like. Mutt and Junkyard it's gonna be difficult to get Junkyard in it, in there because I don't want him to take up too much room. Oh, I, I see. have. I have like the incinerator who uses like a flamethrower kind of object. I'm like, I'm not going to use that because it takes up too much room. So I'm trying to kind of condense everyone. Okay. So, like, you know, Hawk has his pistol in a backpack and Flint will have his shotgun and all that kind of stuff. But no one's going to have anything too crazy. And I wanted to ask you about this is a really obscure thing that I don't think people are going to know anything about. And I wish you could see. I don't know if you can see what I'm going to hold up to the camera. Okay. Let me see. Do you remember these? Can you see it? I can see it's it. The- yeah, yeah, yeah. I see it. What was it about connecting G.I. Joe? Backpacks to weapons or to helmets or to body parts that made these things so satisfying. So cool. this and, and putting everything together, it is my favorite part. Really? Is I, I'm like, I don't I'm like, I don't remember. I think because I was a kid and I was just like, eh, and I just threw everything away. You know, like I was just like, right. Like, I probably I just saw uh, th- I, there are characters I had where I'm like, I bought I got this new and I do not even remember this item that it came with. So, because I probably lost I it the immediately. Same in fact, in fact, I I remember playing with Range Viper from 1990 in Meat Farms oh. and dropping his rifle into one of the oh, no. refrigerator, you yes, know, things. Of course, remember clear as day because it was probably like traumatic. Did. Yeah, probably. Yeah, probably is. <laughs> and and these wires, I think these like tubes, I think were just not really part of it for me. I was just like, oh, whatever. But it's so cool, like when you put Snow Serpent or one of these guys together and it's just all these things connecting. It's so neat. I, I, I just wanted sure. to ask you if you remember these. these I do. Was what, it barb? Yeah.
2: You would know better. Was it barbecue or blowtorch? You had it connecting from his backpack, like his gas tank to his yeah. It's blow, that's blowtorch. That was yeah, blowtorch. Yeah, blowtorch. Yeah. yeah. I rem- so I remember those. Yeah. It was like, that was the thing. Like before GI Joe, we had star Wars and yeah, lightsabers or a, a gun or two, you know, maybe an, an odd accessory, like a vibro ax or Yoda's snake. But then it became so much more articulated with G.I. Joe, where you had the little pieces and you had multiple things for each character. So it was a su- that was a super exciting part about G.I. Joe, was how detailed it was. So th- those tubes are a huge part of that. Little handguns. Everybody had a handgun. You know, we, yeah, we were I love talking that. about Firefly with his little right. toolbox that came off his backpack. Yeah, that he had a so phone.
1: Cool. He had like a phone or a walkie-talkie or something like that, too, which was cool. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's, you that's had really, so much yeah.
2: more... And, you know, when you're little, I wasn't even little when I was playing with G.I. Joe, I was already, what, 10, 11, 12 years old. You're just not even paying. You, you don't even have the wherewithal to keep track, even if you want to. It's like too hard to, you know, not to. You want to play with them. So everything gets lost in the first week, you know.
1: Definitely. It's nice and to have them as an adult. Yeah, I'm, I'm stoked about this. It's, I'm looking back at it now. It's just so exciting. And you know what's cool is just putting the figures up that I've collected over time that I've always I always wanted. Like I have a mint loose Storm Shadow 1984 Storm Shadow, right? That was like the so figure cool. everyone wanted and I put it on the shelf, right? And I was just like, there it is. Perfect in place Cobra logo. Perfectly white. No need for bleaching. Rare. You know, his two swords and his backpack and everything. And I saw it on eBay. I remember when I still lived in California, it was like going for like 80 bucks or oh, something. Yeah, I'm like, oh, my God. And I was like, yeah, I'll take it. But I was like, I'll take it <laughs> because <laughs> because it's like they're so rare to oh yeah dude everything is so expensive now in that state sure i bought things at the right time i have just i'm sitting on so many joes right now like just duplicates and triplicates and i I can army build with so many of these things now but i'm gonna probably trade some of them back and start getting things i'm missing and okay but the one thing i wanted to say is as we move into the show is just i feel like in putting them on the shelf and kind of i'm putting them in random order like just as i grab them they're just going up however they go up and maybe i'll figure out a reason to put them in a certain order later but i'm just struck by how much they hold up i don't know if it's just my bias towards it because i'm so into the brand but i would argue from 1982 to 1991 or so 1992 so not the later stuff where it got like really neon and shit (laughs) right but but the stuff that we grew up with is really really still rock solid you look at cobra commander Snake Eyes or Flint or Duke or Footloose or any of these characters and you're like damn th- these are still such cool characters the weapons all look right that the gear looks right it's just something the Vipers all look right all the Cobra guys the bad guys it's it's cool this in the right hands this brand can be huge I really believe that and, and I think it's frustrating because it was huge once and um I just was reminded of that as I'm looking at all of them again, you know, like placing them up and remembering them or whatever. It's
2: awesome. The quality was so outstanding. I think, you know, so many things about modern Hasbro, if you're into the toy collecting thing in the modern age, but I think because they had their bread and butter in one or two boys properties and one or two quote unquote girls properties. Now they're so diversified, right? With gaming and buying Milton Bradley and Nerf and all this other thing, they have You know, they have all these different things that they have to concentrate on. But back then it was one or two properties that really drove the entire company. And I think that's probably what it comes down to. Brass tax was like, you know, they had to put their all into these things in the marketplace because that's what paid the bills. You know, now it's like they have their concentration spent over so many different things. And the quality of toys back then in the early to mid 80s was so much better. I know I'm in the toy aisle as a collector and and as a parent. You know, now it's down to like maybe, you know, Imaginext toys and Lego, like the only high quality things you could find. And those are, you know, preschool toys and a very specific building toy. You go go after Transformers now, you need to go after Masterpiece stuff as an adult, which is really expensive, not just for Transformers Mm. specifically, but for any franchise that you collect for. NECA and all these, you know, big boy and big girl toy companies it's ridiculous you can't go down the toy aisle and find like a decent toy outside of lego it's really uh i think it's a, it's a problem man we were lucky growing up in that regard
1: yeah you know? i agree i agree and i have this fantasy that i think i'm gonna fulfill in which we try to make a gi joe game at some point at lilimo oh dude and i think what we'll do is just at some point when we could find the time in the coming years just say like i'll just pay for this to be done vertically We'll just make a stage and show them what it could be and we'll make a video and I'll be like, hey, you know, my name's Colin. Here are my here's every G.I. Joe release between 1982 and 1994. I'm a huge fan. You know, I'm willing to fund this game myself. Just give us the license and we'll make an SNES or NES style side scroller oh, so
2: in the G.I. G.I. Joe
1: f- with with G.I. Joe with different playable characters and and all of that. And I'm like, I will g- I guarantee you, you know, from my heart. From the man with that shelf. Right. That it will it will be. Can't be bad. It will it will be G.I. Joe. And I do know that Wizards of the Coast is making a G.I. Joe game, which is very exciting. Oh, I mean, shit. That's that's, um, you know, they've spun out. They got some of the Bioware, all ex-Bioware guys like the Mass Effect and Dragon oh, Age guys, wow. and they're building out a studio and they apparently got the G.I. Joe license. And so it'll be very interesting to see. Oh, wow. Triple A AAA treatment for G.I. Joe, because there was that G.I. Joe game in 2020. It was awful. I platinumed it but Excuse it was me, so you went through it oh yeah I I did. it was horrible that. i just don't know how you can make a gi how a gi joe game is made in which you do not understand gi joe that's like a shame. don't just get away from them like <laughs> how do you not have anyone that understands that you need to have like the obscure characters like i'm so sick of seeing duke and scarlet and all these and roadblock even and others right. it's like there are so many characters airtight barbecue yeah doc tap into that You know, there's so many. Of course, Chuckles.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Chuckles. Chuckles is
1: a very controversial character. Very, very. I was reading about a character named DJ, who you wouldn't know, but he came out in 1989, and Larry Hama hated him. I think so much that they introduced and killed him on the same page. Wow. Yeah,
2: but a named character, not a yeah named named character
1: with yeah, like a character that got a figure and everything, and they were like no. That's awesome. And so they introduced him and then killed him literally that's in the fantastic. same page.
2: <laughs> that speaks to being like a kid and in, the, in the, you know cuz that's what we did with our action figures. Like I hate Snow Job, he's going to die in the opening salvo, you know, that type
1: of right, thing. Right. I hate Snowjob. So. <laughs> you do. We all have a pent-up rage about Snow Job Snow in particular, Job. I think. How did they get away with that? I, that's enough. How do they get away with it? You could have no named him idea. there were other characters later on, but you could have named him Blizzard. There was a Blizzard later. Windchill was another character later you had to name him snow job if it's a red
2: flag for a nine year old it's a red flag you know we were like it never, this never felt right, right. this is it right. never <laughs> felt
1: right it never felt right All but right.
2: that's your passion call so chase that you got to do the game because that's really that's the nice thing about being where you are right you get to pursue those passions that's that's your thing man you got oh my god that's when we would get that.
1: you that's when we would have to have you on board you know oh i would for, love for it. that I mean, that would be be so fun. It'd be amazing. Just get people that just get it. I mean, it's not that hard. (laughs) That's what annoys me. It's not that hard. (laughs) It's the same thing with Star Wars. It's just not that hard.
0: Stop making it so hard. Okay. Today's episode is brought to you by Angie. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot
1: Dave, let's get into the topic at hand. It's All a big right. one. Battlestar Galactica, season four, stretched over 2009 and 2010 on television, sci-fi. This was the third time I think I watched it because I watched it at the time. And then I watched it. People might remember I, I long ago dated a girl named Cheryl. And early in our relationship, we watched Battlestar Galactica. Of course, I would do that to someone. Wow. So I probably hadn't seen it in, I don't know, nine years, ten years, something like that. A long time. And I I texted you this, although not to, to to betray the nature of the conversation, but I'm like, this is like one of the greatest seasons of television ever, and I think even people skeptical of Battlestar Galactica, when you if you just give it your time, you get this payoff that is unbelievable and so satisfying and so extraordinary and so deep, and again brings up this point that i feel which is it's science fiction is just it's just the 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 smokescreen over what it really is which is about religion and god and spirituality and battlestar galactica season four finally gets there and finally makes clear yes this is supernatural yes there is a god yes there is a plan and things in motion and there are people that are dead that are living and there are machines that went sub, you know, subliminally through to- space to find these planets, which were exactly like theirs and all the- And it all seemed to have happened for a reason. And um, I'm just I was enraptured with it, actually. Uh, when I was watching, I was like, I, this is even better than I remember. And I'm curious if you feel the same way, not to set a cadence where maybe we disagree in a major way. But uh, how did you feel about the fourth season of Battlestar? Because I remember you saying with the third season that that's when you felt like it became like serviceable to- Good or great and I'm wondering how you now feel about season four the final season
2: yeah man it's it's so crazy because it's so well for, it's nice to have closure now so we did season one two and three we did the razor movie now we're getting to talk about season four and I know your great love like an affinity for this series and I had a crazy journey with this season and as I remember it a very similar experience that I had with season three specifically for about overall it was kind of a wild ride for the first i would say about nine and a half episodes of this season of the 21 episodes i did find the series very heavy very dire it's unrelenting it i found it to be gloomy i think you know even crossing over into like maybe a little dour and unpleasant because there's constant tension right you have the darkness you have the conflict betrayal there's all these things going on murder and suicide and a major character dealing with terminal illness and a major character gets their leg blown off and it just seemed like it was just getting deeper and deeper in shadow and seemed like there was just no hope i mean maybe later on it gets even darker with miscarriages and sick babies and all this kind of crazy shit going on and i know in reading about the series even while it was airing specifically this season in 2008 and two thousand nine it did get a lot of criticism for that. Like, it's just too, too gloomy, you know? And I think I found myself kind of sitting back and looking at it, first of all, Kyle, as somebody who grew up with Star Wars and a very specific flavor of sci-fi, Indiana Jones, where it was like we had danger, we had stakes, but it was also kind of like a good time. There was fun. And I think, and there's all different, brands of sci-fi, right? We have this, we have Star Trek, we have Star Wars whatever that is now. We have cyberpunk, anime specific stuff, we can get extra inventive because of the visuals, but I think that was part of it where I was looking for the levity. You know, I was looking for the humor. And I know I mentioned this very similar thing in season 3, and almost no real lightness for that first 9 or so episodes where it was like I was kind of looking for that. I was looking for a little more balance. And then I realized, well, you know, you were, very, you were brought along by a very specific kind of sci-fi that's sort of embedded in you. And then realizing also at the same time, I think now in retrospect that I finished the complete series, that I think it's going to age well. I think I will, like you, I think I will enjoy it even more on repeated viewings. But at the same time as experiencing all that through the first half of this season, and experiencing sort of a, like a depression, like, like finding it a little depressing, realizing like, oh shit, you know what though, dude? I don't have the ability to go back and see this in 2008, 2009 and sort of digest it slowly on a weekly basis. I think what I was experiencing was the series falling victim to binging because I was watching four, five, six episodes a day and, or a night. And I think... Because you don't get a break from it, it gets almost stressful. You know, it almost it almost becomes that experience of like you're looking for something, but at the same time, even as witnessing all that stuff, there was a part of me that knew, you know, that definitely recognized a very deep and textured story. Can't debate that. Anchored by excellent acting, almost to a person, which was really wonderful and really grounding experience. Something you don't often see in sci-fi, and some truly enticing carrots you know that kept us coming along and chasing we have as we start this season we have Kara coming back from the dead we need that explained super our our curiosity is peaked we have the quest for earth the ongoing quest for earth we have the question of how will things play out once these four Cylons that are embedded in the fleet once it's recognized that there there are Cylons among the people what's gonna happen what's the fallout gonna be from that reveal and then, you know, of, the, of these Cylons being in the midst of the humans, and then we're dying to know the, the, mister, the mysterious final Cylon. What's going on? So there's, there's so much that even if you're a little, even if it feels a little harrowing in that first nine and a half episodes, it's definitely, you're definitely engaged. And I, so even when I was going through that, and then I felt the season, very much like season three, turned on a dime in episode 10. And then I was riveted and sort of in sort of an awe for the rest of the for the rest of my viewing experience. So it was a really kind of an interesting roller coaster ride. Maybe I was looking for something different in the first half, but ultimately very satisfying, very thoughtful. And what's cool about this is I've only seen it once. So I think this will be an interesting conversation and hopefully maybe a little enlightening. And I may even learn stuff as we talk. Because I'm not even sure how much I'm grasping at the moment coming fresh off watching episode 21 two nights ago. So I'm fresh off the experience. So I can't wait to break it down with you. And uh, you have a little more, you might even know a little more than me because, you know, you've been through this a few times.
1: Yeah, I I have really gone out of my way with Battlestar, especially in my life for some reason, not reading anything about it.
3: Mm. Like, I don't,
1: I'm curious. I I guess I just am like that with a lot of things where I'm very happy to know or i rather i'm sorry to not know what the true intent was and i've learned that with my own storytelling where and i've said this before i don't mean to be redundant but with twin breaker not that it was an important story but it's just the story was not people didn't get it and that's me like that's that's my fault the interpretation of it is something else but any anyone's interpretation of it is really not true other than what i what i feel and The only way to not know that is, no, some people, I don't think people really understood that it was supposed, people are like, why is there a dense story in a, in a brick breaker? I'm like, because it's ironic. Why is there? Why is there, you know, why is it so serious? Because you wouldn't expect it to be. It's just, that's the entire intent, you know, and, and it's about why war is bad. That's the, the nature of the game. But it was frustrating to me, but then I realized, oh, they don't. They don't get it. And that's kind of a failure of my own creation. I can't force people to get it. And then I was disappointed because when I wrote Habroxia 2, I kind of responded to that by writing a much, much less for that game. Almost self-consciously. And then people were like, where's the story? And I was like, Jesus Christ. So then we had to patch the game. And then I I just opted from that point in my own creative endeavor. I'm like, I'm just not reading reviews anymore. (laughs) And and I don't. I, I haven't even read many of the reviews for Habroxia 2 which has an 80 on metacritic. But wow, that's awesome. I feel I I feel like in the fiction that I try to absorb, I I, I bring a similar mantra where I'm pretty satisfied not knowing what, you know, Ro- you know Robert Moore intended or whatever, or in the cases that I explored it, I try to be mindful also of the fact that I was disappointed. I brought up The Last of Us many times on the show with Neil Druckmann who told me point blank my interpretation of the end of The Last of Us is not real. Like it's not it's not true but I feel like I couldn't interpret it any other way and I was disappointed to even know that and so I, I guess I will start by saying with Battlestar it's all up to interpretation and I know that there are deep writings. I think there are like PhD level writings about oh, I'm sure. Battlestar Galactica I'm sure. but my interpretation of it is that it's a the show is about it's about a power we don't even understand the very end actually I think six tells Gaius like God doesn't even want to be called that. He hates that term. And I think that what we find out is that the fusion of human and Cylon, from the colonial sense, was necessary because the, the colonial gods gods were false. There was, in my interpretation, a true God that the Cylons acknowledged and the humans needed to understand that there was more to it than they realized in order to fulfill their true destiny. I also feel like there's a real Calvinist predestination type thing going on here in which things are set into play and it almost doesn't even matter what choice you make because choice you make because that is the choice you're supposed to make in this inexorable path towards the real Earth. And I, of course, think one of the great bait and switches in the in the show is that the Earth that we know today is not really Earth, that they came to this planet and called it that. But it's not actually Earth. And. While I don't really quite understand the timing, they come about 150,000 years before present. Right. And you would think that. Maybe they would have come 30,000 years ago or 25,000 years ago, although I understand like we don't find any remnants of them and their ships and shit. So even the the raptors and, and all the small things. So you have to give it a little bit of time to erode and go away. And I understand all of that. But with them aggressively trying to talk about farming and all this you just think there would have been a fusion quicker but anyway yeah they bring language and all this maybe religion and the one thing that i kept thinking about was the fascination of this idea of and bringing it into christianity i think in the christian tradition and the jewish tradition of there being prophets and then stories told about those prophets and then also notable disciples that have stories told about them and the, the true believers and the people that were involved. And I kept wondering about the 30,000 or so people that survived that we never meet and how they will tell stories about the people we know from the, the show and how that might coalesce into a new mythology that I guess over time to the present was lost too. But I guess I was just so fascinated by that angle, if that makes any sense. In other words, what the fuck? You, you, you reflect, you, you settle on this planet ultimately and you're like what the hell was that and then you have kids and they're like where did we come from and you're like we come from the stars and we have this this angel-like character in in uh starbuck and we have this almost god-like creature maybe in anders at the end and yeah. and all of these different things that i think raise big questions and kind of suggest where the mythology comes from and the one thing that i su- i really uh Appreciate about this show, too, is that they they kept the arrival to Earth far enough away where. It's not like ancient alien stuff, which I think is cool, too. I love that. That's more like Stargate shit, I think. Yeah, but sure. It's cool where it's like these things came when when creatures on Earth, even upright bipedal creatures, weren't quite smart enough to even understand what they were looking at and thinking about the fiction of the interaction between these creatures and how that went and if it succeeded in all of that. So there's a lot to talk about. There really is. And I'm not even really sure where to begin, so I'm just going to go into some of these questions sure. from the audience. Of course, if you support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash lastdaymedia, you can get uh, access to threads that we put up. I put them up like once a week, once every two weeks. Sometimes I publish them in bursts, but I'll let you know what topics we're doing and you submit your questions, comments, concerns, thoughts and ideas if you'd like. Joshua Tull wrote in, He said, hello, my brotherly boys. I just finished the entire series for the first time to say I loved it would be an understatement. The show made me cheer and cry more than any piece of media ever before. I was wondering if either of you had a similar visceral emotional reaction to the conclusion of the show, Mm. or if you did not, what is the special sauce that makes the show so emotionally resonant with so many? I wanted to talk about emotion. This show. You don't expect that from this show, I think the show is still betrayed by its genre and its name. And that's fine. I mean, that's that's sucks for people that won't give it a shot. But underneath the sci fi aesthetic is just proof positive that it's just it's as good a setting as any for meaningful drama. And uh, I'm wondering how you felt about the emotional stuff, because I definitely had a, a, a teary eye at multiple times and definitely particularly with the re- the just amazing relationship between adama and Roslyn.: oh it's one it's just so awesome and I, I keep saying adama reminds me a lot of dad for some reason i don't <laughs> know why he just does um so i see a lot of that there too definitely so what do you think about the emotional resonance of this of, and the emotional quality of this series and maybe this last season
2: i love getting that from sci-fi you know Kyle, and this was that this was an emotional experience from a to z Even when I was going through those earlier episodes, the first half of the season where I was a little bit, where I found it a little too harrowing, a little too dark, it was still emotional. And then the second half of the series, they do something wonderful, first of all, that I have to mention, where in episode 10, not only do they ultimate, you know, they they kind of break all the cliffhangers in one, one or two episodes where they reveal the identity of the four embedded Cylons. They reveal the identity of the last Cylon in Allentai, and they find Earth. All like within an episode's worth of of show, maybe over two episodes, but all within like forty five minutes. And then they still manage to really kind of keep you on the edge of your seat over those last ten or eleven episodes, despite revealing all of those things. And at no time in this series did I feel like. They were resting on their laurels. I thought it was always very engaging. I thought it was always very entertaining. And I think it always did a great job keeping you guessing. And then in the throes of all that, the emotion is something that you really come for. And I think that comes through the story and specifically the characters. Painting such brilliant characters, but then also the performances, again, where we talk about this on the show sometimes, where everybody everybody involved in front of the camera, every player seems so in it and they get who they are and they get the character and they bring that concrete nature to their performance and to their relationships and interrelationships with everybody else. And it, it really makes for a real emotional experience. I, I think of one, obviously you said between Laura and Adama, Admiral Adama, but also like there's little moments in the end where Madam President is saying goodbye to Doc Cottle and he kisses her hand. You know, this is a very, this is a very grumpy, sort of contentious, grumbling character. And then having that little exchange of warmth at the end and seeing how it's going to end for Kara, seeing how jur- her journey is going to end, seeing how it's going to end for Lee, who was a, one of my favorite characters throughout the entire series. And the fact that they don't end it with a pretty little bow necessarily. Like Lee's going to be, there's 38,000 human survivors on that planet, but Lee's by himself. Kara's not there anymore. Adama goes off on his own. Madam President passes away. So there's still, it still ends on that emotional note where it's like, it's bittersweet. I think that the the show really does bittersweet really well. And that emotion is something that this is what makes this one of the great works of sci-fi on screen, be it small screen or big screen, is that. It brings that human dimension to the story. It's not just the tech, it's not just the robots, it's not just outer space and battleships and all this kind of stuff. It's the human backbone of the story that really that's one that makes it a great work of sci-fi, like a Star Wars, like a Star Trek. And you know, I unfairly through the process of of doing Battlestar, reimagined Battlestar with you, Kyle, I would kind of always think. And I don't know if this was down to Larson and Moore or if it was down to other components, but I would always think of Battlestar, this reimagined Battlestar anyway, falling somewhere in between Star Trek and Star Wars, you know, feeling like it was kind of a hybrid of both things. But I think in the end, that was really kind of an unfair assessment. I think it's really its own thing and maybe even like a third flavor of big sci-fi, because I think in the end, you realize it really does its own thing. It's not, you can't really even necessarily compare it to those two franchises. It's really kind of becomes its own thing and maybe even has the most human and emotional dimension of any of that sci-fi that's, that's come before that's, you know, we, we love and that we, we've adored through the years,
1: you know? Yeah. I think in some sense you need to remember your humanity and engage with it in order to enjoy Battlestar Galactica, where I think that there's sci-fi, that's the exact opposite. And I think that there's, I love that sci-fi too. I think about the movie I bring up sometimes, Arrival, which I think is an awesome movie. That and that movie one. is all about stowing your humanity because it is not useful to the, pos- to, the, to the problem that you're confronted with, which is how do you communicate with something you've never seen that can communicate with you? And that requires a different sort of thinking, and that's a different kind of sci-fi. I think this sci-fi is is powerful for the reasons you noted, because it does start with the humans and the humanity of the characters and even the, the little characters as well. But I think another reason season four resonates so much to me is that they start messing with. The. The Cylons themselves, and I'm wondering how you felt about. The Cylon Civil War and the idea that. They were unimpeding the Raiders. And then the Centurions, these more metallic and robotic, the original kind of Cylons, were the closest link to the original Cylons and started giving them free will and choice. And I loved this whole rabbit hole that they were going down with the Cylons and how I love that shot where where they have the, the it's like some tool, some piece of the Centurion. And they're like, what did you what have you done? You know, you, it's going to it's it's neural block or whatever is, is out. And now it's going to be able to reason. And I love the shots that they have. Where, where people are trying to talk. There's an awesome shot with Gaius and the centurion where he's telling him about God, and it's awesome. I love that scene. Even though you know he's talking to CG, the CG's not especially great, but I love just this idea of the centurion kind of like leaning in and being told like you're a sentient being with your own choice. And I think what I find so interesting about it all is that it forces us to reckon with the reality. Nonetheless, Or nevertheless, to the fact that it's evil, what happened, the sinister Holocaust, that these creatures were all programmed to this end, that they had no choice to. And it's hard for everyone to kind of deal with that. And that's what the whole season, I think, is really about until the very end, which is to the very end. I mean, because you think going into episode 21 that they actually are going to be with Cavill, that they're going to be with with all of the and then they blow that all to smithereens. They were going to give them resurrection. And I love, I love that they, they tease that that's going to happen because that would, of course, be like, well, what have you done? Like, they're going to come back now. And so they break the cycle that way, embrace the humanity in the Cylons, which is strange. Or you could interpret it as since the final four and five with Ellen, they're human too, really. And it's so strange. I, I just wonder what you think about how they treated the Cylons in the season from Cavill all the way down in terms of uh, reprogramming them and splitting them apart and making them vote unboxing Deanna. Seeing the face of the final five, these kind of arbitrary rule sets and how mathematical and scientific Cavill is and how human the sixes and the eights and, and so on are.
2: Yeah. I mean, they stood sci-fi on its head a little bit. As soon as now we have it, we got a taste of this in previous seasons But as soon as in season four, when they really introduced the idea, no questions asked, that humanity was capable of evil and the Cylons were capable of good. In other words, humanity is not all good and Cylon, they're not all evil. When it became interchangeable, that's when it got really interesting for me. Because then it made sense for there to be some kind of accord and it wasn't human and Cylon. It was good and evil and the human and the Cylon elements could be interchangeable. And that makes sense. And that, that was a wonderful little thoughtful bit of story to put in there that really stood everything on its head. And not only making the quote unquote skin job Cylons, you know, amenable to good or or imbuing them with humanity or empathy, but also all the way down, like you said, to the centurions, where it's like these robots this breed of artificial intelligence that the humans created were imbued with such humanity that they, in fact, became human and that they were capable of evil, or you know, what you would argue would be evil, like a number one, like a cavil, or they were capable of something more, like a boomer, where they were able to really want to be, want to strive for good, like the good humans, like an Adama, you know. And then you have the people that fall in between, like a Baltar, where you're wondering which way these people characters are going to fall, even through the depth of this season, where it's like, all right, wh- which way are these characters going to go? You know, which side are they going to come down on? So that was really, that was the treat for me, was making the Cylons and the humans interchangeable, where it was like the Cylons are capable of true good, even though they were created by man,
1: um, which is really, that's just a really cool thing. And on the opposite side of that coin is, are are, I think, the humans in which we're kind of forced to side with them as protagonists because they're human, but they're losing their humanity and tapping into the things that humans do worst, which is, you know, these uh, structured governmental systems and and the, the rigid uh, social orders that we sometimes come up with. And I think Rosalind just increasingly... And Liadama, to an extent, increasingly flirting with fascism, I think, over and over and over and over and over again openly is a sign of the disbalance or the unbalance in the story where the humans who you're supposed to root for or want to root for are kind of the bad guys. Like they're in it and and, and their revenge starts becoming like the the center of it. And I know that it's hard to undo the original sin. And we'll talk about that in a little while, but because we have a question about that, about just. Going all the way back, undoing it all. Like, where could it have ended for this earlier? But I like how they force us to deal with a reoccurrence of terrorism, the structures of society falling apart. I love how Zarek becomes a pretty important character. That's great. I love how they make, you know, Gata turn, basically, and make some bad choices and get executed as a result. he's, He's always been a shady character, but you can understand their point of view. And yet we're, we start to see them as villains, even though in their position, I probably would have done the same thing. I probably would have been with with uh, racetrack and skulls and all the people that bailed. And so how did you feel about the way they dealt with humanity in terms of showing its its worst aspects in light of the, the Cylons acting more human? You could argue that the humans started to act more Cylon. Yeah, that's
2: a great point. And, you know, there is a lot of gray area in that. As you said, like you could understand Vice President Zarek and Gaida sort of forming their own revolution and not wanting to have an accord with the Cylons, who, you know, you have this long-standing war of many, many decades, a lot of death, a lot of destruction, a lot of uh, fuel for revenge and for vengeance. I mean, there there's that whole thing with number one, with the John Cavill character, too, where he says his whole thing is avenging slavery, you know, that they were born into being enslaved, the Cylons, and he wants revenge for that. You know, so you, there's a lot of gray area and a lot of, I found myself being sympathetic at certain points to almost all parties where you could understand, even if you wouldn't see yourself come down on that side, you could see their point of view. And that gray area makes things really morally complex and really interesting as a story, because you can see everybody's, you can see everybody's sort of outlook on it. And if you look at their history and trace their, their, what's fueling them, you could kind of come down on their side even a little bit. And then not only that, but the fallout of certain things, like how much is too far? Admiral Adama promises that there's going to be vengeance for, and that that he's not going to be able to forgive Gaeta and Zarek for staging this revolution and for killing innocent people and all that kind of stuff. And he stands by it. He executes those two. Now, those two, all but, they, they basically come down, they bring the hammer down on executing Adama, too, but this just so happens that they had already infiltrated that, so the, the uh, assassination didn't go through. But when it came down to it, I was really curious to see if Admiral Adama was going to murder those two, and he does. You know, So very re- a very realistic you have this far flung space odyssey this kind of space opera thing going on and all these unbelievably unbelievable things happening but very grounded in in human reaction and you know really unbelievable human story almost like a that could have been a war story set on earth you know with much more familiar aspects but again just really grounding your sci-fi and giving it that foundation of a very human story with very human emotion and very human reaction, which I think is what makes Battlestar so special.
1: Yeah, I think it's very well said. And that execution seems awesome, too, because I just love how Gaeta and Zarek look at each other and then just look, you know, look forward or whatever. And you can't really blame them for for feeling the way they did. It's the same thing with the Sons of Ares, who they don't really explore very much. But that's like the polytheistic terrorist group that you kind of find out about in the beginning. of Yes. Of the season and they go after they go after uh, the Gaius followers, I guess, and Gaius himself. But I think about the challenge to polytheism, the challenge to democracy, the challenge to all these things that they're dealing with and the resignation that things just aren't normal anymore. Laura says at some point I wrote down in my notes, sometimes the right thing is a luxury and that's completely fascistic. And I've been saying that as a theme, but I like how they explore that. They explore these themes of governmental overreach and and totalitarianism and and tyranny in really delicate ways that I think are so clever and over and over like it's easy to overblow or make melodramatic those kinds of elements. At the same time, I also think that the coup itself. And watching it roll over several several episodes was really compelling. The ship to ship combat and the hall to hall combat and not knowing who to trust. And there's a really great shot where uh, Starbuck and Lee turn a corner and there's a guy and like he's got his open like pilot suit and his pistols out and he's and he puts his hand up like he's one of them or whatever. And he just like walks away. You You don't really know who that is, but it's like there's all of these people and you don't know who to trust and who's fomenting what. And they did a really nice job of making that all stick. I wanted to ask you about, and I had to ask about the Demetrius, because mm. knowing how you feel about alien and aliens, and we just did those two movies recently on Knockback, obviously Starbuck there's something up with Starbuck, and we don't really know and we'll get into that, but she has this vision of a gas giant with rings that's Saturn we find out, and then three flashing stars and a comet. and all this makes sense in the in the grand scheme of things, but I wonder how you feel about this recycling ship, this this sewage ship kind of going off on its own on this religious expedition. I really loved the, I loved Hilo's role in this entire expedition as well as kind of the intermediary between this really rudderless leader and this crew that wants to kind of overtake her. And you can see that that like the religious splintering is happening here, that people can't accept that there is more at play here than meets the eye that destiny is, is rolling and that they're part of something bigger and they have to be patient to find that out. But I wonder what you make of that. The whole Demetrius kind of side scene, especially because we get to see, unfortunately the death of Matthias, who is one of my favorite side characters, the, the female Marine.
2: Oh, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Well, I like that. The fact that this played out a little earlier with the Demetrius. I mean, first of all, Admiral Adama. You got to understand, like Kara, Apollo was right there. He saw Kara die. So when she essentially comes back from the dead, in quotes, it's a harrowing thing for everybody. Apollo's, you know, a brother slash lover type character. Adama is a father figure to her. And everybody's shooken up, and there's no explanation for it. How did this woman, this ace pilot, how did she come back from the dead? And then convincing Adama not only to not... You know, keep her locked up in the brig, not knowing if this is a Cylon, if this is some kind of other potential threat that they don't know about yet. To let her go out on this mission and take a crew of people along with her. And then this potential mini-mutiny happens where you could see humanity being pulled in different directions. with By sort of beholden to their experience, but also to what they want. And what? look at Gata. I mean, Gaeta's involved on one side of the mutiny later. He'll be involved in a larger mutiny on the other side of things and loses his leg in the process. And then these people have to be, after this mission, these people have to basically agree to come back together and be part of the same fleet. And one of those harrowing experiences that they go, to, go through as the remaining clump of humanity reminds me very much of Finding Earth in episode 10. And it's the same kind of thing where they have this hope and then they find out there's not going to be a paradise. You know, hope was fell victim to this sort of nuclear winter. It's a dead planet. And now where's the hope? So they're collectively going through these trials as a people. And that Demetrius thing was kind of the first one in the season or the first major one in the season where they have to go through these things and the, I guess, what you could argue that the goal is discovery, but what they're discovering is that it's going to be harrowing to stick together through all these trials, if that makes sense. And that's what I got out of that. For me, it's like I was hoping in watching that it would spell out some of the mystery of what's going on with Kara, but what ended up happening was you get a little bit of these major characters, like you mentioned, Kyle with Hilo, This is the first time we ever really get to know this character, even though he's been along for the ride through, you know, the first three seasons. This is the first time we're getting any substance from these characters. And they're going through these experiences and these trials together. And that's really the tough spot, is having to endure these things and and kind of coming down on different sides of the argument or different sides of the conflict, and maybe even changing as they go along. You know, we see characters like that again with Gaeta, with... Where it's like he feels one way and then his loyalty is kind of brought into question and he ends up being brought along by Zarek and he gets brought along in a whole different direction. So I love the humanity in that too, where characters can change. Characters have conviction, they have courage, but even characters as important linchpins and keystones like Madam President, they're, where they're, you know, it's their courage and their conviction that are. You know, basically anchoring humanity, but they also could change. Their views could change. They can evolve and they can be reasonable. And sometimes you make a mistake for, in the, and you make the wrong mistake too, which many characters do. So, and having to maintain hope through all this is the, is the weird. And we see that with the D character, right? She can't even hold on to hope anymore, which is another tragic thing. So that's for me, it's like the Demetrius arc. That's what it really meant to me was like, you know, seeing these characters. And, and the conflict and how that's going to play out on just, just hope.
1: What did you make of the whole Earth angle, that Earth, the way they found Earth is 2,000 years after nuclear winter began, can't really live there, and that we ultimately find out that the five final Cylons are the original inhabitants of this planet in some way and rediscover resurrection technology and f- send themselves out and... They end up sharing that technology with the Cylons that they find that that things are in motion already, that they can't warn anyone of things that bad things that are going to happen. I love specifically that they didn't discover FTL uh, faster than light travel in that that arc like they don't have faster than light travel. Oh, right, right. That's why right. They, that's why they're traveling subluminally. Which sure. Is... So interesting. So what did you make of that? Was that surprising to you that Earth ended up being like a wasteland? Didn't when, see was that now? coming at all.
2: You know, that that was then not only that Earth was destroyed, but also the fact that that it, the inhabitants were the Cylons. Now, I got to ask you a question because I'm a little unclear on this point. What was that nuclear fallout, that nuclear war that took place on Earth? Was that Cylon to Cylon or was that saying that the humans attacked the Cylons who were occupying Earth?
1: No, I think it was saying that the Cylons created their own Cylons that that killed them, oh, that that attacked shit. them. That and that's why I remember I that's, that's why I remember when they see that you see remember they dig up one of the centurions from that planet yes. and it's like a little bit different yeah it's like it's and six says it's not one of our models but it's it's clearly a Cylon so and they, they were like and they were like these humans created their own slave robot race but what they didn't realize was that the the master race in that situation were the humanoid Cylons. that's <laughs> so I that love that years before. Effect. Yeah, it's awesome. And years before, they say like resurrection technology was lost. Right. When they when they realized that they could just procreate. okay. And so they had to go and just dis- rediscover it. And they, they suggest, I mean, there's a whole. See, I think that like Razor and the plan and other things delve into specific parts of the story. I think that part of the story is something that could have gotten its own series, which was. Oh, yeah. Which was the five people, the five, those five characters, how they found each other and apparently each brought something to bear to get the resurrection technology Going and then off the planet, but by the time that they solved the problem, it was too late. That so, makes sense. So yeah, that that would have been a fun fun story to explore, but plenty of substance there. Did you? Yeah. I, so I, I do. I mean, it's obviously solved in the last episode, but it's fun to then know that the Earth, as we knew it, is not really Earth. That Earth, Earth, and we see Africa specifically when they when they first see the planet is of course is the real planet itself. But we'll get to that shortly. I wanted to ask you. About the hybrid and the return of the hybrid and also about Anders becoming a hybrid. I'm just so in love with this idea. This is the literal merging. Of human and Cylon, and we learn in this episode, although all this season, although it it kind of moves quickly through it, is that the centurions created the hybrids. That's as far as they got. So the humanoid models came from Earth. Through time and space down the Cylons as they were and basically latched onto them but the Cylons at that point the Centurions had already made I guess crude raiders and the crude kind of hybrids. so they were experimenting it's it, and so the Cylons had encountered them when they were at the very beginning of this experimentation of trying to become fleshy humans and that's what cattle's hang-up is is like why did we do this like what was the point of this this was this is the most inefficient stupidest thing that we could have ever done to ourselves you made me an old man right and and it all starts with this kind of this this experience with the hybrid and the way the hybrid talks well what do you think about the representation of the fusion of human technology through the form of the hybrid and that the hybrid actually is the one that tells Kara that she's maybe a the angel of death yeah as well and then the full circle where anders becomes a hybrid himself and anders is the one that's responsible ultimately for driving all of the ships into the sun to the kind of destroy the evidence right as it were that anything had happened so what do you make of the, the representation of these characters i'm quite fond of the hybrid i would love to get like a hybrid like statue or something like oh a, that's cool like a toy that would be pretty neat it's yeah. awesome imagery
2: i mean i, I think about I, you automatically think about things like minority report kind of meets mash up with maybe the matrix films but yeah, I love the whole idea of the hybrid and and just sort of this prophesizing or seemingly prophesizing entity that, you know, is it prophesizing? Is it gibberish? Is it telling us the future? How much of it can we trust? How much of it is accurate? I love the mysticism there and the spiritual elements that tie into the series with that. It's not just hard sci-fi where it's technology gone amuck and, you know, um The arguments for creating artificial intelligence or for creating robots that are basically indentured, you know, created in the in the in the mode of humans and doing work for them or, you know, creating your own slaves and all that kind of stuff. It's more than that. You're crossing over into the religious elements and the mysterious elements of the story. And, you know, it it really it makes for a lot of fodder for keeping you guessing and spelling out this universe, and what does it mean? And you know, what? How does it connect to Kara? And how does it connect to spirituality versus technology? Or flying in the evolution, flying in the face of maybe this is an angel, maybe this is some sort of godlike being that's you know supposed to be spelling out information for the humans, and then crossing over into the Anders character. How that happens this, the the other thing that's important to mention here, Kyle. Is I've never seen a series propel seemingly insignificant or less important characters into a role of prominence like this one does and vice versa they'll take a character that you think is important and kind of simmer down that you know that potential role and then they'll take characters that you think aren't that important and cast them into a place of prominence and give them the spotlight they did that with the anders character i never expected this to be the arc for that character you think it's like a young jock type character maybe a freedom fighter someone that Kara could love because of their courage or because of their charisma or bravado or that type of thing a little different than a Lee character so perfect for a love triangle but then they take this character and they make him one of the final five Cylons and put him into this hybrid form and it's like whoa like I, I could have never seen this coming and it works and it totally works
1: it, it really does i I, in terms of imagery, I think they, they really they just nailed this. And I think by fusing humans and machines in this biological format, this format that I think is much more biological than mechanical, they show what the silence are really interested in, which is discovering more about how everything works. In fact, six says at one point, we've learned things about you, how you work that you've never known. And that's so ominous. And that's like what they're interested in doing. and They do it very quickly. And I love that entire idea of. This idea of merging. And I think it's Lea bin that says allow our paths to merge. And so ultimately they do. I wanted to ask you about the Opera House. Mm. One of the things I respect about this show a lot is that they clearly had a plan. About how it would at least conclude in some way with some characters. The Opera House thing has been in play, I think, since the first season, if not the second season. I think you're right. And the, the way everyone sees each other at the different angles ends up being the way that they see each other on Galactica. It's so good. And we hear over and over again, the dying leader shall know the truth of the opera house. That's what the hybrid says over and over again. And it's the shared vision that Gaius has with Tori. And we know that Hera herself can be in it and six and Athena and Rosalind. And it's incredibly spiritual and so fascinating did you find the opera house meaningful? And did that signal to you, too, that there's some good writing here just in that they really did have an end in mind for this? It wasn't it didn't feel more like lost or something where you just know that they have no idea how this. <laughs> right. Ended. like they're by writing By the way, episode by by episode. The way I, I don't disrespect that. I'm writing a big game now, like our role playing game, and I have no idea how it ends. No, no idea. It, it actually doesn't exist to end. It exists because I like the idea <laughs> and we'll see what happens. You know, so I'm not trying to disrespect that per se. But going in with a plan of finality is really cool. And I remember being so heartbroken that it was only four seasons. I remember being like, oh, my God, how are you just going to take this away from us? But I think the Opera House is a sign that they knew exactly what they were doing. The, the episode count, therefore, was intentional. In fact, I think they got something like eight more episodes than they were originally supposed to get. Oh, wow. Um, I didn't know that. And uh, I think it was reworked around the writer strike and kind of benefited them. So they got a little bit more time and space to actually even flesh things out. But what did you make of the opera house scene and the shared vision and how we find out that all these people really are in this seeing the same things, sometimes in the same room, experiencing it right next to each other, for instance, in the sick bay when certain people are having those dreams?
2: Yeah, it's 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 so cool, dude. And I, I speak to your sentiment, too, on respecting the fact that they were writing around a template or framework it's just really thoughtful and i think this season was divided into two right they had a six or seven months off between airing so i know and and the
1: writer the writer strike was like happened and stopped everything for a little while that's
2: that's what happened in the center of this whole thing
1: right of season four
2: but i know i think i did read that the writers all went to like some retreat somewhere and actually tried to like put together that architecture of how the story is going to play out from A to Z and, and, you know, really make a really thoughtful story from soup to nuts. And that's the proof's in the pudding. This, this doesn't feel like it was written. Like you say, like a lost or something else where it feels like it's written episode to episode. And they're kind of flying by the seat of their pants. There's some definite structure here. And I love that. And I love the whole opera house thing because you see it when you see it in snippets, you see that the characters are kind of haunted by these visions these obscure visions, maybe they don't make much sense. They're having trouble putting the pieces together. How does this fit in? What does this mean? And it happens to be some sort of foretelling-ish, whether it's some sort of religious reincarnation, this has happened before, this will happen again type thing. Go on, you know, between Sharon, between Six, between Chief, whoever else was involved in those, and Hera, who's involved in those visions. And seeing it all come together in that concrete form that, you know, again, speaks to all the spiritual elements of things repeating itself, history repeating itself, being able to acknowledge or recognize, basically foretelling things that are foretelling, that aren't just visions, actually foretelling what's going to happen in the future, or that these events are going to repeat themselves in in a slightly different form. It just speaks to. I think it's it. Not only does it speak to the overarching spiritual elements, but it makes it a little creepy too for us. I think as humans, because of the things that we type, you know, we tend to wonder wonder about with spirituality and um, maybe even crossing over into what could be regarded as the occult or you know things that we don't understand, life after death. Or, you know, just things that, you know, we don't recognize as people in, in this dimension in our very limited view as, as human beings. And that's taking place in the story, too, which is another... And you know what the other thing is, too, Kyle, that you had spoken about that, that dawned on me as you were saying it? The humans creating the Cylons as servants, essentially, right? You would think, like, something that would ease our lives, something that would make our lives easier and more manageable but then imbuing them with such i guess steep artificial intelligence and such humanity that you're automatically breeding a human curiosity in the thing you're creating and then that how that perpetuates so now the now the cylons are, have their own curiosity and their own creativity and their own sort of desire to evolve and you know sort of learn and all those kind of things that didn't really dawn on me while watching the series but now that I think about it in retrospect that's a huge part of this thing is you're creating life you know essentially that you don't you know probably the humans back when they were inventing the Cylons weren't thinking that way but that's essentially what you're doing and I think that speaks to creating AI in real life too so how does that how does that tie into the real world and what we're dealing with right now with everything going on on earth right
1: Right. Well, I think that it gets pretty on the nose at the end when they show all the robots at the time mm. 2010 being built and
2: That was funny.
1: And I do like the fusion of the real world at the very end like they finally acknowledge the real world. There's a song you recognize, there are brands you recognize, places you recognize, and I think that that's a cool acknowledgement. A literal acknowledgement of being like just so there's no confusion, no Sopranos-like confusion at the end here. This is Earth. Right. This is your society. This is your Earth. Right. Our. And so like there Right. Not not that they, they beat you over the head with that enough. But I think that that was kind of the intention. But you're right at the very at the very genesis of it. Pardon the pun, I guess, because it's so biblical is this idea of of the creation of life and. The Cylons couldn't accept our Cylons, like the Cylons we knew in most of the show. Yeah, could not accept that they created their own structure of slavery when they were confronted with it. It caused a civil war amongst them because they could not rectify their viewpoints it reminds me a little bit in some sense of trying to rectify early American history and this idea this Jeffersonian idea of freedom for all and liberty for all but then we had slaves for another 80 years it doesn't make any sense it's hypocritical you can't comport those things eventually there's going to be a tension that will break it like a civil war and I think that that's kind of an echo in in Battlestar Galactica of saying you've made a system that you can't contain and your system is begot from the system you hated, in which you have the same hierarchy. And that's why I think it's so cool that they we finally get to know the centurions as much as we're gonna know them. Like we finally realize they're they're sentient and are able to learn and make decisions. They say at one point the Cylons are committed to the cause. That's what they say. And so they've made decisions, they can think. And at the same time the reaction on the other side of the Civil War with Cavill is to lobotomize the Raiders, which yes. the silon which the Centurions are freaking out about. And I love that, how they start backing each other up. Even There's even a shot where after they solve a lot of their problems, they go to unplug the hybrid, and the Centurion needs to be killed, because the Centurion's like, no, no way. But then you see another side of the Centurion when Ellen is resuscitated and resurrected, he holds out his hand and then there's like another hand you never see the Cylons use, which is like this rubber-coated hand that they probably use for fine, fine mechanics. That was awesome. But we just never see them. And I thought that was really cool too. So it's so that they had some sort of sentiment inside of them, some sort of awareness uh, of human, human-oriented pain, human-oriented sure. experience. Yeah, great point. It's very deep. It's incredibly deep. What did you think of the assault on the Resurrection Hub? I loved this. Because this removed this changes the whole game for the Cylons, even for Cavill. It's so strange to watch Cavill so quickly kill himself at the end because he is holding on in hopes that he can just get out of that body. Maybe there's a, maybe there's a resurrection ship floating in deep space that has him on it. I don't know. Yeah, he can't get to it nonetheless. So they're all permanently dead. But I love this assault, not only because it's like this amazing caper during the, the whole order of the show this unusual and unlikely success story for them. It's the one of two. There's even a bigger one when they find the colony, which is basically the Cylon homeworld. But what did you make of the idea of removing resurrection as, a, as an idea from them? We know that they can get distant enough from their ships that resurrection won't work, but we didn't understand that at the center of all of it is this basically hybrid controlled device that jumps all the resurrection chips for it jumps itself around so that the resurrection ships can never be found and only the answers can be found on that ship. I found that so fascinating. And then once the success of the assault is clear, the math changes for the Cylons completely. And there's no hope for them now to have any outcome. They, they start playing differently. It's interesting. So anyway, what did you make of that, that particular arc?
2: That was the cool, that was the sort of action set piece that I was waiting for. You know, as you said, this caper... They have to rescue Hera. I love the fact of seeing, like you said, this sort of Cylon mothership, Cylon hive type thing. We had never seen it before. So I love the late reveal of that. That was a lot of fun. Because after episode 10-ish and sort of everything, all the questions are kind of answered all in one quick breath. I was kind of looking for, and we know the Deanna character, at first you're thinking, like, is the number three character that was previously boxed, is she going to end up being the big baddie? And when she's kind of brought on board with, you know, becomes, I guess, quote-unquote, a human sympathizer, or she's kind of brought on board with the with the, human, the humanity side of things, then you realize it's the number one character, the John character, that's going to be the big bad. And then you're kind of settled in that. But then, then knowing that there's a place, there's a spot, I, I just love that classic sci-fi where you have this mothership, you have this giant thing, you have to infiltrate, it's just that that's the fun I was kind of looking for. And again there's great stakes you have to rescue this half human half cylon child. She was kidnapped by the bo- the rogue boomer and it spelled out some of the you know that's what I was hoping for and it did like I was always thinking the entire time like the cylon models the dozen cylon skin jobs like who's who and how do they you know what's the pecking order how do they fall in what else do we need to know about that so we get a little more of that, too, because I was even researching that online, like who's number one, who's number four, what's the order, what, you know, what are the significance of these characters in, in, the, in the Cylon pecking order, or military, or whatever you want to call it. So you get a lot of that with this, and you also know it's, it's sort of the Galactica's last mission, the is falling apart, and it's, it's, it's done one too many hyper, hyperspace jumps, and it's dying the starship's dying just like it seems like humanity can't find a place to live rosalind's dying like there's a lot of stakes at this point in the story and it was a lot of fun i really i really dug it and i loved seeing like the cylons the quote-unquote bad cylons and their heavy heavy artillery like this was a little bit of the star wars or classic battle star that i was looking for so we finally got that in this in this arc
1: what did you think of the in terms of the resurrection and in terms of the construction of the Cylons themselves that there's a lost model and we never actually see it did you expect to see this Daniel character pop up we learned I did. about this, this I, lost I character. really wanted
2: to see this yeah I had questions about this too this is the number seven that you're talking about and you know I don't know how you come down it sort of connects to Kara a little bit and to, to Starbuck I don't know how you come down Kyle but I don't know if it ended with suggesting that she was some sort of heavenly entity, like an angel. Was she a, a Cylon? Was she a sort of half-breed? But I think I read somewhere, I needed a little help in understanding this, that number seven, the Daniel character was actually Kara's dad. Did you hear about this? And that the human I did, mom, and, and
1: that they had to nip that in the bud, right? That, that whole thing, like they actively said that it wasn't- Oh, did they say a, that? that yeah that daniel was if i they think did, it was something it. like that that um well i i i just remember reading that 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 was like something that they nipped in the bud because they were afraid people would be disappointed oh that it wasn't true you know okay like that it was that it was so compelling because what we all we know about daniel is that he was created second i think okay and that ellen started getting jealous or ellen started like showing him favoritism and cavill destroyed all of the resurrection out. stuff like he remember they said something about like contaminating the the fluid in all of the babies. Right, right so that right, like, right. he couldn't be revived and then he killed him
2: okay he showed like so, demonstrative creativity or something like that right yeah
1: something something that like was yeah something that was like he was sensitive yeah he was like the exact opposite of Cavill. Okay, and Cavill okay. was made i think to be more like what her dad or something she says some, some weird thing but it's makes, so
2: cool that there's one that we never even get to see
1: yeah it, they took it, it is out cool. ages ago yeah, it's interesting that we never like I was always expecting he would like the, the, he would pop up somewhere at the end or whoever or maybe it was someone amongst the fleet that we just didn't know who that was. But it wouldn't really have make, made any sense, I guess, when you really.
2: No, think about I it. guess you had enough there.
1: I like this idea of merging of mythologies between Cylon and human, but also this need that they need to work together and be together. And Dan Patterson wrote in about this on Patreon. He says, oh, Dan. Brothers Moriarty, now that we've reached the end of this amazing series, I have a simple question. Could you go the path of Baltar and Hilo and have a relationship with a Cylon or do you believe in human only relationships in this universe? Thanks for these episodes. It finally pushed me to watch the show. Awesome. Dan. Hey, nice. I'm glad to hear that. I'm curious, Dave, what you think about this. This is one of those relativistic questions. What I mean by that is. It's very easy for me to answer the following question a very predictable way, which is if you were alive in 1700, would you have slaves? And I'd be like, no, of course not. Right. Now, I'm talking about that through a relativistic lens. I'm a modern man with modern sensibilities. I wasn't born at 1700, and I could not possibly really know the answer to that question. I feel like in terms of the question of Cylon love and all of this, and love being a central component, of course, of the show, is that I would like to think that the answer is no. Th- I said this earlier, that I could imagine that I would have been with Zarek and those guys because how could you forgive the original sin right and it's just it's just too hard you can't it's very human the revenge cycle is endless but i couldn't i don't think i could let go of it but i don't know because relativistically i might have been in that situation where you know Hilo fell in love with eight because of their experience on new caprica it wasn't it didn't just happen right and so maybe i would have been subjected to a same the same experience obviously look at adama, the way adama feels about and struggles with the when, when it's exposed that Ty is a Cylon or that chief is a Cylon and all of this. It's 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 startling. But then are you reminded of their humanity or their its not even humanity? It's their sentience, their existence, their very existence. And so I don't know the answer. And I always think about that when people ask, like, how, you know, how could this great man like Thomas Jefferson had slaves? And I'm like, I don't know. It, it seems impossible to imagine. But clearly it happened. And so there's some sort of weird rationale in this guy's brain that relativistically we just are so detached from that we can't even answer the question. So I know that's kind of a deep thing, but I feel like Battlestar Galactic is deep enough to have an analysis like that. So I want to ask you, would you have forgiven the Cylons? Would you have been a sympathizer like Dan asks, have relationships with them?
2: Yeah, you know, so this, this series, right, poses all these questions, metaphysical questions, important questions. We have religion and slavery and bias, racism, science, technology, the, the limits on evolution and, and learning, the importance of art and culture and society, terrorism, all these things, all these really thoughtful questions that I think the series poses. But this was the probably the most, this was kind of the most interesting one for me, Kyle, that, you know, and it, it makes me think about it as a human and putting myself in these people, th- these last humans, putting, themselves in, in, putting ourselves in these people's place. Here's the thing. If our human senses can't detect any difference between a Cylon and a human, is that a human? You know what I mean? Like, if there's no way for us to tell as people... If we're dealing with somebody, a Cylon, or an actual flesh and blood human, is that actually human? You know what I mean? There's just no way of telling. There's just no real differences, at least to our, whatever, limited recognizing capabilities, right? So, in other words, and not only that, but also, if if they could be that human, then having some sort of understanding having some sort of accord with these quote-unquote cylons with these other people it would just make sense to me right these are basically people we created this thing that evolved to this state where it's nearly impossible if not fully impossible to even tell the difference and they demonstrate humanity they demonstrate empathy they demonstrate all these human traits and it's genuine and it's authentic Then it's a question of even though that would be difficult, it would be a far flung leap as humans to accept these other things as people. I think, yeah, for me, I want to say, I think I would in this world, if this is the understanding, if this is the exact sort of grounds for recognizing these silences as people, I think I would. I think I could do that. Not only that, but having... Then it gets into having copies. And if there's no way to identify the copy from the original, then you're getting into a whole nother question, right? Of like, let's say losing a loved one. If you could create a Cylon of that loved one, and it's a perfect proxy of that original important human, is it that human? You can't tell the difference. Is it that same person? you know so it gets into all these crazy things where it actually almost seems like a like a like a really big positive where it's like we never have to experience loss again maybe even so that's a tricky thing to wrap our heads around it's very sci-fi but for me yeah i think i come down on the side of if if we're capable of that could be a good thing
1: i think maybe the word humanity in some way becomes a synonym for our understanding of consciousness and that surviving sure and one of the things that I think is really interesting I wanted to ask you about in this regard was the return of Alosha the priestess and I love that episode because the ship is just jumping and it's we get a lot of time with the hybrid it's saying all sorts of crazy shit and then it just jumps so randomly into random places and every time it jumps the president has a vision with Alosha that gives her more insight. And she says something really important. She says, if humanity will survive, it can't be on a case-by-case basis. As the mythology becomes, I, I, when they find Earth, the mythology becomes softened. I think everyone kind of realizes the stakes are at play here. What did you feel about seeing Alosha again? What did you, how did you feel about seeing some characters that we hadn't seen in a while? I, I really loved seeing Zach, for instance, in the final episode. Mm. So we'll talk a little bit more about that. What did you think about some of the the spirituality being brought to bear? This idea that it is, to your point, more about consciousness than anything else and our understanding of the way we interface with the universe.
2: Yeah, I think that spirituality is important. I think that conversation that Madam President has is part of her, you know, part of her journey in seeing, maybe seeing something that she hadn't seen previously because she's known, she's courageous. She's got that conviction. But her sort of understanding needed to evolve a little bit too, if they were going to survive as human, you know, as humans and coming around to having some sort of truce or some sort of understanding with the Cylons, of course. And, you know, again, like sort of conviction flying in the face of evolving or growing or changing your mind. And that's what that sort of meant to me. And that's, and also, I guess faith plays into it too. Like you were saying with spirituality, and coming down to having a reminder of not only sticking to your guns i guess to put it into layman's terms sticking to your guns but also in in on the other hand having the capacity to to change and letting your empathy speak to um evolving or maybe growing or thinking in a way that you previously hadn't which i think that's a big that's a big takeaway for me for this season of, of of uh, Battlestar. Same thing with other major characters like Admiral Dama. I mean, it's just like he had to he had to basically not only trust his instincts, but trust the people that he loved and change his mind and also put aside his biases. And again, that need for revenge and um, just trust that and, and very difficult decisions. Right? I mean, you make, a, you make the wrong decision, it could mean the extinction of humanity in his case. So that was a really big takeaway for me in this too, was like, and that spe- just speaks to being a human, right? We have our convictions. We have the things we were taught, the things we learned, sort of the things that create our foundation. But at the same time, we have to be able to adapt, evolve, listen, and all that kind of thing. So that's where, really where those conversations and those experiences speak to me and, and, and sort of ring true. And, and, and again, like, provide that foundation for emotion, too.
1: Let's delve further in on Tom Zarek. Oh, good
2: character, man.
1: Zarek's interesting to me because if everyone's, everyone in this show seems to be forced to accept things that they don't want to accept, mm-hmm. I think Laura embraces, as we said, fascism and kind of totalitarianism. At the same time, Zarek starts embracing a protective scheme that is set to shield the very system he was trying to destroy before the colonies were attacked by the Cylons he's now kind of one of the, the the purists like one of the patriots in some way sure how did you find that now I want to be clear Zarek is a murderer I mean they kill the quorum and do other things too it's totally undemocratic what he's doing as well but he's doing it. In, so he says in the in the name of protection of the system as it is and that it's being corrupted and bastardized by rosalind so i'm curious what you make of his kind of rise and his reappearance as kind of an important character in this in this entire season and ultimately he meets his i think deserved end. but he's riling everything up and but also acting as a protective agent for some something that he really dedicated his entire life went to prison wrote manifestos and all this to try to destroy sure yeah
2: i mean he's a revolutionary i like what they did with his character because they really surprised me with him you know you think by the time uh, season four starts, he's brought along and he seems to be on the side of the human fleet and he seems to be an ally for Rosalyn and uh, for, for Laura and for Admiral Dama. And then he sort of, it flies in the face again of everything with, you know, taking exception to the humans and the Cylons having this sort of truce and having this accord and he doesn't agree with it. And sort of that revolutionary comes back out and he leads this group against Adama and against the, uh, the leadership of the fleet. And it was interesting because you think by the time season, he, he went through this journey where you didn't know if he was friend or foe. And then when you finally think he's, friend, he's a friend, it changes again because the dynamic of what was going on changed. Now, had that not happened, had Adama stuck to his guns and not developed this accord with The dissenting, rebellious Cylons. Would how would this dynamic have changed? But I like that. I like the fact that, and all, and through it, and through and through, he remains who he really was, who we knew him to be from the beginning. Who was a revolutionary, and somebody who, right or wrong, had the conviction to stand up. And he, you know, he in a murderous way. He's kind of a despicable person, but. You know, you got to give him credit at least for sticking to his guns and the fact that he really felt genuinely felt this way and he took he took the fall for it, you know, and I love dude. I got to mention also the part where Gaeta and Zarek um, think that Ty and Adama are executed. They think they're gone and they go to Raza and they're like, look on the you know, they, they're talking to her on the comm link or whatever. And they're like, look, they're gone you have no choice but to go along now. And she's like, no, you know, I'm coming for every one of you. Like that was a spine chilling moment for me where you see, not only do you see his conviction, he have happens to be wrong. They're alive, but you see in that moment, you see Laura's conviction too, that even without Adama and Ty being alive, she's still going to get revenge too which was like, whoa, like that was a great kick ass moment for me. One of the one of the the highlights of the season for
1: me. Yeah, she's awesome. She's a great character. Okay, I want to ask you about the Battlestar as a ship and as a character, obviously as a ship and we know it as a ship, but it's character more than anything. And we see its demise in this episode and they kind of do a nice job of slow playing it as the ship is jumping around. First of all, it's been just endlessly bombarded by ordinance and it survived nuclear direct hits and obviously plenty of conventional weaponry just tons of damage in fact when they jump into the to the colony at the end near the end and it's just getting like point blank just obliterated by gun batteries but it's too close to use nuclear weapons so they're just using conventional weapons it was sad to see it go and I like this entire idea that the Cylons were trying to help them by rebuilding the ship, but that it ended up giving Anders some weird control over the ship as well, which ended up helping them because he was then able to kind of directly just lead the ship into the sun. But I wonder what you make of the ship as a, as a character and, and kind of, it was sad to see it crumble and go and the way everyone cared for it. There's some great scenes of different characters walking around different areas of the emptied out or hollowed out corridors and bays and offices and the CIC and all the different locales how did you feel about Battlestar Galactica as a ship and as a character
2: oh uh, dude it, it, you're right I mean it is a character I mean it's it's the setting the primary setting for this whole series our whole experience with the with season after season it always reminded me of first of all I love seeing it compared to a more contemporary battleship like the Pegasus Where you see that this thing is older, the design is older, it looks a little more cumbersome. It always looked kind of like a scaly toad to me or something. Kind of robust and stocky, like a lizard almost. You know what it reminded me of? I thought about this watching this season. It reminded me of that dinosaur, I think it was called an Ankylosaurus. It's like this armored, low-slung, turtle-like dinosaur... That had this long tail with like basically a wrecking ball at the end of it. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, it kind of reminded me of that. Like it would, it would just, and I think that wrecking ball, that huge weighted thing at the end of this tail, they were designed to knock down. I don't know if it coexisted with a T-Rex, but much larger dinosaurs that would knock it down so it could get away, type of thing. It always reminded me of that. And I, yeah, I love the fact. I think Laura says it at one point. It's a very uh, emotional moment where he she says to Adama. You're losing both your women at the same time, you know, because the battleship's dying. Lara's dying of her cancer. And, you know, the, it has these giant, comes to pass that this thing has been running for so long. Not only is it ancient, I mean, don't forget in the beginning of the series, it was already before the Cylon attack, it was in the throes of being decommissioned, basically being like a museum ship, like the USS Intrepid or something, right? So, it was already in the process of being brought offline. It was old. It was it was inferior to what the humans had. And basically all these huge cracks, and then it turns out that there's all these pressure cracks in the metal, and they develop that silon, su- Cylon substance that's like that ooze that they're using the paint on the ship that's like going to turn into some sort of bonding cartilage for it. So the ship, not only is humanity... And the Cylon's bonding together, but the Battlestar Galactica itself is becoming part Cylon ship, which is really interesting. I love that they did that. And the fact of like, you know, they took exception to that at first. Adama didn't want that. He's like, I don't want my ship to be like part Cylon, but if this is the only thing that could save her. But you see like jump after jump running from the Cylons for so many years. Like this thing is just falling apart, the seams. There's nothing that that could help it. And it's so sad to that last battle where you could see it sort of pitching and everything like that. You could see the parts just almost moving to the point of breaking off, you know, the hangers at the side, those really iconic hangers at the side for the Vipers and the Raptors. They're kind of look like they're just, they're pitching in such a way that this is going to break off any second. And the whole emotional thing of just flying not only the Battlestar Galactica, but the entire fleet into the sun and like retiring it. I really thought they were going to show that. It's kinda cool that they didn't though. It's kinda cool that they kinda you know, again, like show don't tell type thing. But yeah, I mean, such a great such a great, iconic, visually striking one of the great battleships, right? You have the Yamato from anime fame, you have obviously the Star Destroyers and Star Wars. Then the the, I think the Battleship Galactic is right up there, man. Just an iconic sci-fi ship that will go down in the, in the annals of sci-fi as one of the most important.
1: Or the annals. Oh! Oh. All right. Let's talk about a few more things as we begin to get towards the end of our conversation. I wanted to ask you about the flashbacks at the end, uh, towards the end of the season. There are five, I think. There's a series of flashbacks with Kara, Zach, and Lee. There's a series of flashbacks with Gaius, Six, and his father. There's flashbacks with laura and her sisters and then there's a flashback with actually there's six because there's adama and ty flashback and then there's anders flashing back to his pyramid days right and i really loved these scenes i'm wondering if you you walked away from anything interesting i especially loved the the idea that Kara and lee were maybe about to cheat on zach and were stopped at the last second (laughs) you get a lot of insight they mentioned it early in the show that gaius has like a fake accent and kind of comes from like a working class background but they really explore that more which i think is interesting and, and his background as a farmer laura experiences so much loss before the explosions and you never even hear about it so she's carrying all this baggage around with her which i find fascinating her father and her sisters all die simultaneously that was insane adama almost walks away for the money to go work in private enterprise, and is drawn back to the Battlestar. He wouldn't have even been there if he didn't make that decision. And Anders talking about his obsession with perfection more than winning, and doesn't even care about games and stuff like that. I, I actually really liked those. That was cool. As well. So, what did you make about those different flashbacks and the decision to show us a little more of the pre-Holocaust days, which we hadn't really seen too much of, especially in the last like two episodes or two seasons
2: yeah it's true nice character building moments man that tie back into the characters that we knew during the series during their outer space
1: conflict that they were all part of and i mean like, how bad did th- i'm feel sorry for- I, I just want to interrupt they, d- just the things that we didn't know about them that are so important oh like my god they. huge yeah, yeah huge things yeah sorry,
2: huge yeah. things yeah. and yeah like you're saying the tragic i mean how bad do you feel for laura at that point knowing that her two uh, sisters and dad died in one, <laughs> one car wreck. I mean, that's like you're taking a character they already feel so much sympathy for and just compounding it. And then the Anders thing was awesome. I loved that. How bad did you feel for Zach Adama in that moment, where you know Lee and and Apollo and Starbuck were just two peas in a pod, like they were just meant to be, and Zach was just kind of caught up in all that. Not only does the poor guy die, but He's kind of caught up in that thing where these two characters are just, you know, they were just meant to be together. That, that love was fast forming and just stuck. You know, they really did love each other. Super, super cool. And yeah, the Admiral thing, the, the Adama thing was also really cool. You know, walks away from a lot of money. And just, you know, one of those moments where you really, I guess for him, he just realized this is who I am. You know, the money would have been nice having that station in life, whatever type of thing. But who I am is who we got in the series and, you know, sort of his backstory and how things could have been different for him. But and how things could have been different for humanity, because who knows what would have happened to humanity without Admiral William Adama. So Definitely. those are really cool. I, You know, as I was witnessing those in the final moments of the of the of the season and of the series. I was kind of lamenting, like, oh, shit, no, you're wasting time. Like, I kind of want to see what happens. But ultimately, they were very satisfying because they were, again, very cool character building things that gave us even more in those last minutes of characters that we already loved. So just to have a little more dimension was kind of a welcome
1: thing. Yeah, it's. I think it was going to show, it was trying to show how all of these different people almost weren't in the positions that they were in, and they all played key roles. I think specifically... You know, imagine the triangulation and the destruction of the family that would have happened if Karen and Karen Lee went through with that or Gaius going off on his dad in front of six, convince six to show more humanity that helped get that off of his plate. And then he was like, I'll give you the defense mainframe access. Laura wasn't going to do anything with Adar in his run for president until she lost her family. And yes, to distract herself. Adama obviously, like you said, almost took a private pay and then it ended up back on this shitty old kind of museum of a of a battleship and and so on. So I really I agree it's it seems like frustrating waste of time, but so vital to us really getting the last piece of character building for all of them. And I love that it all just touches on things you just didn't know. Yeah. That but that they all knew about each other within that thing. It's like six knows that the entire time about Gaius, but it never comes up. Dude, that's an and, awesome point. You know, Laura never brings her sisters up, never brings her father up. Or if, he, if she does, it's just like a story. It's in passing. Adama never brings up that he almost left the service and everything. So it's interesting. And I really like that they did that. I thought that was a nice little touch. Absolutely.
2: Yeah. And have those catalysts, you know, for how things ended up shaking up or shaking out in their life, which is really kind of cool, like a little co- kind of cool thing to see there in the end. And again, with Anders, who knew? this guy was going to be so important in the grand scheme of things. That was really shocking and satisfying thing for me. Again, to propel those characters to a station that, you know, you think they're kind of secondary players, but they turn out to be main cogs in, this, in these gear works. And I think that's really cool. I've never seen anything like that. I never saw a character, uh, a show rather, juggle so many characters and then have appropriate payoffs for just about every one of them. Some tragic and short-lived like D. But every every character has a thoughtful arc,
1: which is yeah. like it's interesting, awesome. even like characters like Hot Dog. Yeah. You, you know, he's kind of saddled with a kid. He finds out you find out that that's really Callie. How crazy is that? Like I was having an affair with Callie. I, I like the redemption for race car and skulls or racetrack and skulls, especially when they kind of come back and they die. But she's the one that shoots the nukes into the yes into the hub and destroys it before she dies. Good and shit, man. It's so even characters like that that were on the wrong side of the rebellion kind of get there. They get culturally resurrected like they, they, they do the right thing, even though people probably don't even know. They'll never remember. They might always remember them. A great as point. As traitors. So yeah, they play. I dig park. that as well. Yeah. Yeah. Rob Aiken wrote in us on Patreon. this morning, Colin and Dagan, what do you hear? Nothing but the rain. It's a question of what you would. What would you do? The tape line is down in the hangar bay. Do you flee or fight when you get to Earth? Do you really give up everything and start walking in the African grasslands? Personally, I'm not going from being a Viper pilot. The fighting cro with a rock. It's just not happening. Good hunting to you all. And remember, the music is in the frack and ship. So a couple of things I want to touch on here. The music angle, which is fascinating, but also this idea of choice. It's said, and I don't think there's any real there's any real uh, interpretation. Otherwise, the Cylons, the Centurions take the base star and jump away. So they're gone. And then right and they're maybe they'll come back and fuck things up but it seems unlikely and they say that
2: that's a that's a risk right. we're taking yeah right right
1: but that we think that we we think that the centurions understand that we've broken the cycle and, and uh, t- truly unleash them and so we hope that they rem- basically remember that and so that's that but otherwise it seems like everyone agrees to go to the planet surface and rather than they originally wanting to build a city and kind of starting again you know certainly they probably have 3d printers and all sorts of crazy technology mm. where they can just begin again they they instead just Destroy it, and it's hard to buy into that in some sense. But I understand you. You would have to understand they've been doing this for like four years, and what do they have left? Just the legacy of an old life. Why not embrace what the planet's going to do to you? That's why I think, even though it's frustrating and kind of nonsensical for it to have taken place 150,000 years before pre- present, it still makes a lot of sense in the fact that they arrive and have been so layered into Earth's ge- geologic and huma- human history that it it's not even there you know like it, it it's gone it's eroded away and it's kind of anticlimactic in a way but fittingly so there's just no evidence even the mythology like i said earlier mythologies they must have built over generations christianity's 2000 years old right it's 75 times older than than that right so it anything that they wrote or did or taught it wasn't it didn't survive and i just wonder what you uh what you make of this idea of uh, of first of all going to the african grasslands giving it all up what side would you have chosen during the combat itself would you have kind of gone on the suicide mission or stayed behind and i wonder too if you have any memorable shots of this uh of this african landing because i feel like there's so so many beautiful visuals at this point too yeah dude a lot of colors that they incorporate like oranges especially that you don't see in the show at all and certainly sky blue you don't often see there's one shot in particular i love of adama tai hoshi Cottle, and uh gaius all laying in the grass looking at the people walking by and i love that shot so i think good. that shot's awesome because it's like it's kind of our goodbye to toshi like drops the admiral things back in his hand and talks about how he was like immediately like didn't want the experience and we kind of get to say goodbye to those characters which is a nice thing but anyway there's a lot here what do you think about the kind of eschewing progress by breaking the cycle quite literally by saying like we, we have to break the cycle we can't even have any remnants of this old world
2: well I love that my boy Lee is at the center of that seeing the wisdom and seeing how that plays out you know him being pulled between two worlds of being a pilot and being a military guy and being somebody with more of a political station or a lawyer and sort of having that whole, uh, sort of the skill sets of his dad, but also being his own individual, but knowing in the end that he cultivated the same wisdom as his dad often dispensed is kind of cool. Like he's the next coming of William Adama, which is so cool, like kind of a cool payoff in, in some ways, but really maybe not because he's going to go off and explore the oceans and explore the hills. Like he's like he says, he's gonna, he's not going to live that life anymore.
1: I I wanted to say yeah. I was a little frustrated by that because I'm like Lee, you had you could just do that in a raptor. But anyway, <laughs> go on. Yeah, that is true.
3: Yeah. Also,
2: I was I was kind of thrown by the whole thing that you know Lee and everybody they're standing around they're talking and Lampkin's like, well, we'll set up the boundaries for the city. And I'm thinking like, what they're just gonna build the? It sounds easy, like they're making it sound really easy. But then you're saying with their technology, we're thinking it from a 2022. You know, earthling
1: perspective, but few in the future, they could probably do this stuff pretty rapidly. So you got a great point yeah. there. I, I, well, I think, I mean, my, my, that was just my assumption. Like they, they are clearly running out of things, but they clearly are still manufacturing a lot of stuff at this time. Right. They even talk about how people are making clothes, how right. people are obviously rolling cigarettes and making liquor and stuff. So these are more lo fi things, but I think, yeah, I think it would be reasonable to expect that with just the, raw materials they found that they could have made whatever they want. That's a great you would, point. You
2: I mean, that is a really considerable point, actually. But, you know, again, I love that. And, you know, for every character to... Well, first of all, I love the payoff of actually finding a proper Earth after finding that poisoned Earth. So there is going to be actually somewhere, if not a paradise, but certainly you could construe it as a paradise, right? Somewhere where they can sort of throw down and colonize and perpetuate right cuz it's 38,000 left plus they mention of course the people that are already the primitive people that already live there so that's kind of cool and you know also having this whole dynamic of they talk about briefly like spreading out like having a pocket here having a pocket here we'll all know where we are and where we exist but co- sort of spreading out and colonizing across the across this planet co- sort of sort of having that strategy And, you know, just, I mean, really, it's just kind of fun, but also a little bittersweet, again, that Adam is over here. Lee's probably not going to see him. They don't really, I mean, necessarily, kind of kind of vowing in that sense to eschew technology. So they're going to start bare bones. They're going to start back from square one and just become farmers and work the land and build little cabins and stuff like that. So definitely interesting, and I love what you say because it, it means that they have to have the discipline to sort of dispense with the technology and start over. You know, Lampkin's, like, surprised by that at first. He, he says, like, it's pretty crazy what I'm seeing here. Everybody's sort of, at the same time, agreeing to just give up all the creature comforts that they've come to know over decades and hundreds and hundreds of years. But knowing there's wisdom in that. Because the problem that we're looking at, the problems that we've been dealing with for the past hundreds of years have been due to this technology. So why not start afresh? That type of thing. Which is really cool. And again, but you know, I feel bad for Lee. There's no D. Kara disappears, right? It's a little bit, even though there's thirty eight thousand people there, it's like you feel
1: like Lee's gonna be lonely or something, you know.
2: I feel I felt bad for Lee. My sympathy. Oh yeah. Went. definitely it's
1: hard yeah that was that was a rough scene you know but that brings me that brings me to my last uh inquiry yeah man which comes from hugo ribeiro who says hello boys hope you are all well let's talk about the finale what are your thoughts about Kara? Mm -hmm. was she an angel what do you make of the epilogue with baltar and six and were they also angels or some kind of divine figures trying to influence the decisions of those two characters because they appeared throughout the show first to baltar and then to six did you like the conclusion i loved it even even if it left some things open to interpretation i thought it was a fitting end to an awesome show I think that the show, in my opinion, hits you over the head with the fact that Kara is like an angel of some sort, some sort of divine character, going all the way back to her treatment by the Cylons and on New Caprica and all of this, but also the drawings she makes and, and the music I wanted to bring that back up. Her dad writing a song that is interpreted into numbers, she punches it into the FTL drive and they jump to Earth. I mean, it's super cool stuff. I just feel like obviously there's divinity at play here and so I've accepted that and I accept Baltar and six as being some sort of supernatural characters too. We might be seeing them in this, in this view of car. I feel like they're angels on the characters shoulders that need to be seen as they need those characters need to see them. And so we're seeing them that way, but they might not exist that way. So what do you make of the, I kind of the last spiritual question, which is like, what was going on with Kara? She found her own body. She found the ring and the, and the tests were done on it, and the blood was found, and all this, so what was she?
2: Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. I kind of fall into the camp of she must have been some sort of Angel as well. I mean, it is cryptic. At first, I thought it was a little overly cryptic with stuff like this, a little too confusing, but I kind of like that they kind of leave it obscure, that, you know, you kind of got to answer your own questions and make your own best guess, but I like Angel, and I like kind of tying Gaius... Six and Kara together because if they were sort of some sort of angelic guide types for humanity for the Cylons for the for the for this whole story they all did have very similar characteristics you know sexually promiscuous heavy drinking a little selfish heroic in their all heroic in their own right but also extremely self-indulgent and maybe self-destructive. So there might be something there that was purposeful that they all share those common traits, which is really interesting. I just thought of that. But, you know, for Kara, I, I like the character enough to maybe have a little, a clearer answer would have been welcome. But at the same time, I kind of like, you know, again, making my own guess. Gaius was a really confounding character for me. Because I was always waiting Mm. for the other shoe to drop with him. I think I mentioned this in our season three discussion too, Kyle. I was always waiting to see what side he was going to come down on. Could he dispense with the self-indulgence, with the womanizing, with the boozing, with sort of placating himself and just become a proper hero? And I guess he does in those last moments of not leaving with his entourage, with his, uh, I was going to say, his religious faction. I think they call it a movement. I don't want to offend Gaius, but when Gene and Paula and all those people leave, he decides to stay when he could have left. So I guess that's his last kind of final heroic act. We know Kara's already heroic in her own right. And then we see Six is kind of heroic in what you mentioned in the whole arc with Gaius and his dad. You know, she was kind kind of operating in that genuinely empathetic capacity early on we see in the in the final moments of the show so that's interesting and in, in putting lumping all those characters together but i guess i guess they were sort of angels all angels in their own right which is you know which were they were designed to help guide and prophesize and get them to that point get humanity Indeed. to that point i should say
1: i think so too and i, I like to think about the the little things that they brought to bear in that universe when they come in, maybe that's when fire is probably older than one hundred fifty thousand years. But maybe that's how people started discovering fire, or yeah, being safer with with water, or getting the very embryo going of agriculture. Although agriculture is really, it's not even anywhere close to being one hundred fifty thousand years old. So that's kind of where some of the my hangups anthropologically stand, but spiritually and religiously, I think this 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 uh, show is just so bold because. I think it's saying like, no, it is. It is spiritual. It is religious. It, it, there is a force at work. There is something at play here. And I and everyone plays a role. And that's why I think Gaius is especially interesting, because Gaius reminds me a little bit of Larry David in the beginning, not in it's not in his humor and personality, but just in that. Through his own kind of myopia and selfishness, he finds himself in a situation where he didn't intend for this to happen. He just was having sex with that six model and having, you know, a relationship with her and trying to impress her. He didn't know that by giving her the back end access to the mainframe that it would destroy the colonies. And by the end of the show, you kind of realize like he because they say to him, like, you've never done anything just selfless for you. You've never done done anything that that didn't benefit you until the very end. And it makes you realize that, wow he could have kind of just owned this way sooner because there were a lot of people around him that kind of saw this entire ball rolling and weren't really concerned about how it started to begin with because they all embraced where they were at that point and almost just delayed Gaius's comeback. He couldn't let go of his selfishness and his, the bad aspects of his humanity until the very end. And so for in some way, seeing him not only live but thrive and find happiness with six reminds me a little bit of Pete Campbell at the end of Mad Men and, I don't want to spoil it too much, but that like he has a happy ending. Yeah. And it's like, what? I know what you're talking about. You know where, where it's like, yep. why? <laughs> and it's the same thing with guys. Like, why does he have a happy <sighs> ending? But it kind of makes sense. And I, I don't really mind it too much. So. dig is there anything left unsaid about Battlestar Galactica that you wanted to talk about before we go?
2: No, that was the other thing that the series does, though. We're just talking about how it ends and where it ends and just flying in the face of expectation. Like who expected the series to end on? africa with giraffes and antelopes and baobab trees and stuff like that again it was like a thing a thing that i went into completely unspoiled first of all and second of all those kind of surprises where it was like you could have never expected to tre- you know tread into these territories where it went and you know made it a surprise and a treat Every step along the way, I feel like not just for season four, but for all of it. And even when I felt like things were a little dark and a little depressing, and maybe a little too heavy at times, it always offered up really thoughtful writing and really very good to excellent acting. And uh, that's why I really think it's worth everybody checking out. I think it's really if you like sci-fi and and you like really thoughtful sci-fi in your series, in your feature films, in your video games, then you'll definitely dig this because there's a lot of substance. There's just a lot of substance there. I wished it could have been a little more fun along the way, but I really think that's a different flavor of sci-fi. I think that I think I don't think you come for to Battlestar Galactica for that necessarily. You know, well, early on I was thinking of the original series, 70 series and it was it seemed to me as a little kid that original Battlestar series it did seem like TV Star Wars to me. You had the spaceships, you had the stormtrooper-like bad guys, you had the guy sort of the hero with the low slung blaster. And it seemed like they were kind of trying to do Star Wars. But it was kind of thoughtful for Moore and Larson to take that and give it this type of gravitas and a little different dimension than the original. So it it it's pretty faithful to the original, at least those core properties but it really takes it and makes it into something different and again i think by the end of this journey i realized that this isn't really star trek meets star wars it's its own thing that's really my biggest takeaway is, is like this is its own thing and now it's really kind of interesting to have this conversation because they're talking about going back peacock's going to do a new uh, it looks like they're going to do a new Battlestar series all we know so far is it is connected in some way to this series. We don't know if it's a prequel, if it's a sequel. It's supposedly not a reboot, but I think Larson has said it might have been more. It might have been Ron Moore said, and to some degree, it does tie together. But that's as that's as clear as they got. It's pretty uh, it's pretty obscure right now. But it's nice that it's relevant to the conversation now, too, that we, it looks like we're going to be getting more, not only a new series, but a new feature film as well, which is supposedly a very big budget. I hear it's like a really grand operatic thing. So it should be fun to uh, it should be fun to, t- you know, to go into that and, and get more. I'm definitely looking forward to that.
1: Yeah, hopefully the you know, they've they've tried to explore this universe a little bit. Caprica was a prequel series that got canceled. That was about the creation of the Cylons. I
2: got to check that out.
1: How is that? I remember I remember only watching the, like two episodes and I'm like, "Eh." Okay. It was just I I, I wasn't into it. And then the the plan, which I never saw. I do want to watch that. We'll probably do an episode about that at some point in the future. And then which is about the Cylons right before the attack. I feel like a movie could be about the original war, which we never see, which would be pretty cool. That and would you could even bring in and you could even have people play Husker and others that are characters that we know later on. Sure. And then I I think a an interesting series would just be they would never do it but like have a have a sequel that takes place 15 or 20 years later and go back and see what they're doing on earth and see if it's working out and i don't know that would be a different sort of show it's not sci-fi at that point but yeah i wonder maybe 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 it is maybe maybe there's like a a faction that will not let go of technology or oh that's trying to mess around with things or something there's all sorts of ways they can explore but i am glad to know that It's not a reboot, because when I saw that, I'm like, leave it alone. This is a show. Do not. That could be dangerous. This is a remake already. You do not need to go any further with this. This, You have a perfect thing here. (laughs) Everyone's still alive, pretty much, and everyone is probably available. So if you wanted to take a few of these guys and do something special with them, I think you could do it. And everybody's
2: probably down, I would imagine, right? They have to be proud of this body
1: of work. I would imagine that's right. the biggest thing that a lot of them have ever done, you know, and sure, that's no insult to them. It's a it was a big phenomenon. The, the thing about, I think about Battlestar, there's a few things with Battlestar that were wrong. The timing was wrong. It was probably. Five years too soon. Yeah, it would have otherwise been much bigger, I think the network was wrong. Obviously, it was going to start on NBC, but they booted it to sci fi. Right. The budget was wrong. You really see in the in the fourth season how beautiful it becomes. Like how clearly they just got way more money and there are shots where I was like, Holy shit, this is looks awesome. And still it stands by up really standards. Re- yeah, yeah, I think so too. Yeah. So I think that there were a few things working against it. Because very similar to Game of Thrones and The Walking Dead and other things, it's surprised like Battlestar just was too early. It just it missed that window of true nerd fandom. It was kind of overlapping with The Lost and a few other things that started to percolate twenty four and all these shows, but sure. it wasn't the way it is now and I think that the way things are now would have been much more receptive to this high budget high acting well-written sci-fi show and I still think that the greatest trick that this this show ever played on anyone is to trick anyone into thinking it's a sci-fi show it's, it's just really not relevant at the end of the day no <laughs> it, it, you know it, it, it first and foremost it's just the drama and I would say that its biggest theme is religion I don't think it's big and God I don't think its biggest theme is science at all it
2: really does shake out that way you're right
1: Dake, that's all we have. Yeah. Uh, hey, we're man, done with Battlestar. Fun. Yeah, it was fun. I'm glad to get through that. And uh, I hope everyone out there enjoyed our conversation. Remember, we've talked about the other three seasons as well. If you're coming into this blind, as well as Razor, yeah. which is an awesome movie about movie. Admiral Kane. So, Dave, let's uh, end as we always do with a dad joke.
2: All right, Kyle. Kyle, why did the restaurant hire a pig?
1: Oh, my God. Did you fuck it up? What are you doing?
2: No, that's it. Why did the restaurant hire a
1: pig? Oh, you said, okay. Why did the restaurant hire a pig? Yeah. Okay. I don't know. He was good at bacon. Oh my God. <laughs> that was good. I didn't understand why you, why you say, you're like, why did the, why did the hire the pig? It was a, it was a hanging, it was hanging. Oh. You didn't, you didn't wrap it up with a I question. I thought you were one. trying yeah. to
2: guess. Cause this, I feel like this one's a, yeah, this one's a guessable one. I feel like no, maybe not for me. Is. I'm not very good. I don't have that intuition. Not me neither. But for you.
1: That's a good one, though. Well done, Dagan. (laughs) All right, my friend. Thank you for your time today. I appreciate you. And thank you all out there for your love, kindness, and support of all things Last Stand Media. Knockback. Remember, find us on free feeds, YouTube, of course, Patreon.com slash Last Stand Media. We appreciate you. We'll see you next time. Until then, goodbye.
2: Until then, my friends.
1: Knockback, a retro and nostalgia podcast, is a product and trademark of Last Stand Media and Collins Last Stand LLC, and is recorded from Central Virginia and the Philadelphia suburbs, USA. The show was conceived by and is produced by me, Colin Moriarty. My co-host is Dagan Moriarty. Knockback's executive producer is Dustin Furman, and the show is edited by associate producer Ben Smith. All of Last Stand's theme music is by Ramon Narvaez. As you know, all of Last Stand Media's shows, including Knockback, are fan-funded on Patreon at patreon.com slash laststandmedia. The following names are at the producer support level or higher on Patreon, and we're grateful for your kindness and generosity. Andrew Morgan, Stephen Nieder, Ross Marenka, Begale Brewer, Morgan Ashley, Azan, Michael Vecchio, Jerome Ferreira, SL the FMA, Jorge Palomino, Daniel D'Amour, Brad Cooley, Jeremy Key, Patrick Leslie, Dave Cowell, Tom Quinn, Stephen Innerfield, Christopher Knock, Zeno Adam, Grayson Maxwell, Cody Woodle, Nuclear Prostate, Sort of Serious Gaming, Unofficial Controller Podcast, Colin Farley, Mark Arnold, Zia Parix, Henry Groth, Relentless Rex, Troy Miller, Meyer Katz, J.A. Zhu, Tristan Palacios, Drew Mullen, Christian R., Jad Rita, Patrick Skipper, Sweaty Mitt, Chris Kelly, Dustin Graff, Peyton Stone, Josh Howland, Rui, Tyler Watkins, Michael Buffel, Troilus True, Dan Root, Talisman, Christopher, Randall Holsey, Robbie Nauman, Nuke Dukum, William Holbert, Landon Pipkin, Josh Godfrey, Kalike Souza, Vornak, Betty Ann Moriarty, Daniel Johnson, H-Tronge, Jay Getter, Bjorn Campbell, Jeff Mercado, Gregory Silvinsky, Galja, Of Fortuna, Boots, Tyler Brown, Megadet, Poot, Gavin Newland, Saul Balcazar, Zach Parsley, Brian White, Raul Melendez, Alex Bolton, Matt Martin, Kinums, Joseph Baker, Rodney Coleman, Chris Moore, Caswell, Antti and Chris, Will Hernandez, Chris Galvin, Justin Gonzalez, Mason Cadillac, Ollie Fritz, Zach Allum, Kyle Hagel, Colin Love, Daryl E. Naaman, Ryan R. Kittredge, Toby Ryland, Michael S., David Bostick, Stewie108, Patrick Montgomery, Damon W., Fat Houdini, Richter86, Steve Hodge, Barrett Boswell, Christopher Devayo, Chris Morton, Kevin Kamaki, Mark Liberto, Johnny Waffles, Roto24, Jonathan Coach, Sean Mason, Josh Gravelick, Jordan Town, Brian Chan, Organic Produce, Shane St. Pierre, Carlos Algorit, Richard Hebert III, Miranda Grubba, Josh Yeager, Martin Beck, Gavin, Joey Andrzejczyk, Nathan R., Joe McPartland, Gary Cavallo, Christopher Moore, Jacob Bell, Dennis Uzel, Lou and Ray Loper, Jonathan Cortez, Dylan Burns, Jason Lusky, Malachi Wall, John Schultz, David Chestnut, Anton Kay, Brian W. Rath, Alan Tremblay, Tyler Bellow, Ryan T. Mandel, Tony Zaniga, Sean Battershall, Robbie Hensley, Alex Cabrero, Lennon Brixie, James Kidslow the third, Hugo's desk, Peter Reynolds, Anthony Vazquez, Adam Kinniston, Tyler Goodwin, William O'Carroll, Jesper Jansen, Max Cannon, Phil Crone, Throw Seven, Adam Nix, Josh McKinney, Michael Gates, Alex Gates, Ryan Robertson, Sean Chandler, Lockmore, Gio Corsi, Joey Gonholliger, Gerald Pennington, Justin Wagaman, David I. Colucci, Paul Joyce, Edwin Castillo, Chad Lewis, Enrique. Perez, Joshua Smallwood, Spencer Brand, Don Lee, John Cordero, Keith A. Lewis, Maria Scarson Peterson, Ryan Greenwood, Tyler Harris, Matthew Purdue, Patrick Harper, MadMock Media, Jonathan Rice, and Casual Misfits Gaming.
3: So I I know you've got a lot going on, but remember I'm here for you. So bother me when no one's listening because I will bother me when it feels like it won't get better because it can bother me because you're never a bother. Whether it's a low point or a crisis, get help for yourself or a friend. Learn more at neverabother.org or call or text 988, available 24-7.